0: That opening text of Scripture, I want to read one more time. And I just always like to do this. I don't know why. I like for you to have a piece of Scripture in your mind from the beginning to kind of carry you through, because we're going to hit a lot of Scripture today. So if you brought notes and a pen, awesome. If you didn't, I can send you notes. If you don't like notes, you're just going to have to remember. But I want to start back there at Matthew, because I think this is really going to get... uh, Really going to ring for us, ring true throughout the entirety of this sermon. Kind of the point that I want to make. Um, really, only have a, a few simple points to make, but want us to be um, certain that what we are going to hear in those few points are what Scripture would have for us, what God would have for us, what we need to be as a church, and what we need to do as a church. So, Matthew chapter four. read this at the at the, be, at the beginning during the scripture readings, and I, I hope you noticed, and Nick made this clear. Um, a, a few weeks ago when we combined the Old and New Testament readings together, there is a, often an intended purpose for you to hear the Old Testament reading and the New Testament reading. They they are scriptures to try to draw for you a little point here and a little point here within the Bible on what we're going to talk about in the sermon. It, it's to help you, it's to it's freshen your mind. It's like cleansing your palate almost so that you're ready to receive what you're going to Uh, hear when the the word is preached. And uh, this one came at the end, obviously, for a reason, not just simply because of its New Testament place, but because of how it connects to the previous two. So Matthew chapter 4 reads, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then now he's quoting the prophet Isaiah to you. So most of your Bibles, you're going to have quotation marks, and it might even be blocked off for you. So he's quoting the Old Testament here. So what Matthew's doing for you. This is how Jesus has fulfilled what is quoted here in Isaiah. He says this, quote, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, here's what Jesus says in light of that Isaiah verse, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And church, I don't have any kind of better introduction than that to say, in these last couple parts of our series what we're going to be discussing today is something that we earnestly desire for us to do as a church and that's to be evangelistic we want redeemer community church to be an evangelistic church we want to be marked out by that through and through we want we want to bleed evangelism the same way we would come up here and tell you we want to be bleeding prayer and doctrine and what we'll hear next week holiness we want to be about evangelism and we want to be marked out by that we want this church to be marked out by that and most importantly we want you to be marked out by that we want you individually to be marked out by evangelism but i i I feel there are a number of points that we need to go through because often what gets assumed to be a evangelism within a church context has absolutely nothing to do with what the Bible would say evangelism is. Or on the flip side, brethren, we have actually been told what evangelism is by men and we actually haven't opened up their, our Bibles to hear what evangelism is by God and i can and i can tell you i've been in both boats i've been on the wrong side of thinking evangelism is just inviting somebody to church and i've also been on the other side of thinking evangelism is just saying a few words to somebody and then i'm done and i'm just that's it that's all i had to do that was that was my task and i want us to be convinced that neither of those hit the mark not even close i want us to be convinced of that so we're going to do a, a few things want to hit a few couple points here and Nothing too crazy. The first one is going to be what is evangelism. We need to define it, and just like all of these, well, maybe not all of them. Some of them we didn't have to hit too big of a definition, but I think evangelism we need to hit. We need to we need to be able to lay out what evangelism is, and then we actually need to know this: what is its content? If if you know what you need to evangelize somebody with, what are you going to say? Right, that's what you should think, and if you go, that's okay. Listen up to point number two. What's the content of it? And then three and four are, are really the ones I'm going to enjoy the most. But there's a twofold aspect to this, okay? Church, if we, if we come to understand what evangelism is and we feel a burden that its content needs to be known and proclaimed and taught and preached and kept, uh, there's going to be two aspects to that. One, there's going to be a goal that our evangelism seeks to accomplish and I'm going to preach to you will accomplish. But two, uh, there's a goal within the church that evangelism is supposed to foster and cultivate. Because, yes, evangelism goes out to people, and it's supposed to change people outside of this room. Right? We, don't, we do not want evangelism to be in Nick's uh, house. We don't want it to be in this front room that we call church. Uh, we want evangelism to go out from here. But evangelism better have a goal within the church of changing the life of the body. It it, it better have an orientation of making us something different than what we are. And I want to be able to hit on that as well. So this first point, what is evangelism? This is my third drink of water. I'm so proud. (laughs) So this first point right here, what is it? I can cut that out too. It's okay. Uh, what is evangelism? Now, I, I want to always start off like I, I, th- I think I do, is I want to talk about what it's not. And I can't list off a number of different things of what evangelism is not because we could be here all day on a conference about what evangelism isn't. But I do want to think, I want to highlight a few that I think are prominent in America, especially in, in 21st century America. And that's this, brethren, listen, uh, evangelism... First and foremost, let me just start off with the word. Evangelism is is, is just an English word actually taken from the Greek in the Bible, right? So your Bible that you have in front of you is a, a wealth and deposit from men faithfully throughout the church age who have translated the original language that the Bible was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And they have translated it for you so that you can read it in your common tongue, your language. And you should be thankful for that. I was watching uh, something on the Reformation earlier just thinking about people who have died so you can do that. Uh, but the point is this. We get that word evangelism from, straight from the Greek. And, and, and it's euangelion. Or in, in another word, in a verb form. And I usually don't like to go Greek on you. So I'm not trying to like throw fancy words out there. I'm going to explain them all to you. I know some of you just got all tight about that. Um, Yuangelizo is another word talking about the one who makes proclamation. And brethren, that's all just to say this. Evangelism in two things, to put it together as one. One, as you understand it as a noun, it is a proclamation of a message. That's what it is. It, It is literally to be translated good tidings or good news. And then when the person does it, they are an evangelist. They are a herald, as as, uh, some translations will say. They are a proclaimer of this truth. They are one who proclaims good news. So if evangelism is that, just at the base root of its word, then I think there's a few things we can say right off the bat that evangelism's not. And I want to share, I think, a few of these. So first, evangelism, for it to be good news, is not in any Christian Um, sense at its heart, simply helping other people. It's not just going around being a salvation army, bringing people in off the street, feeding them, clothing them, giving them jobs, making them productive members of society. Yes, those things are all good, those things are all right to do for people, uh, but brethren, if, if, if someone gains all of those things and Jesus says, what good will it do you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? There is something that is not had in simply helping others. There's something that's just not had there. It, so the, the good news that we are going to bring to people cannot simply be, let me help you. Whether it's physically or emotionally or financially or whatever the case may be, it cannot be, let me just help you with something. Second would be this, and I think this is prominent within evangelicalism in, in the church in America, is, is, is this, a, 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 a backdrop that simply says, God loves you. And uh, church, I always want to be careful with that because God does love his people. You better believe it. We just sang a song that says, your name, your name is love. We know you as love. And that's true. But brother, apart from the backdrop of scripture, giving you a definition of what that love looks like, how it moves, how it walks, how it talks, simply telling people God loves them is not the gospel. You go find plenty of guys on YouTube who will go out into the streets and all they want to proclaim to people is, hey, God loves you. Let me heal you. God loves you. Let me tell you how wonderful of a plan he has for your life. God loves you. Let me just tell you how great you are. And, and brother, think of, think of the consequence of that. Now, I'm not the first person to say this, but what happens when someone who really likes themselves hears from another person, hey, God really loves you. They're like, great, I love me too. That's fantastic. Thank you for letting me know that. Bye, I don't want any of your Christianity, right? Because it, it, it's nothing new for them. What good news does it bring them? What, what relief does it bring? It's no good news at all. But this, this, uh, this facade and this charade that we have propped up in so many churches in America that says that if you just love people and if you just tell people that God loves them, that they're somehow going to walk in holiness and love God and love the church and love doctrine and love prayer and love evangelism, like it's not going to happen. It's because it's not the gospel. It's not what saves somebody. It is not good news to just tell somebody that God loves them. Because, brothers, we're going to hear, when we get to the content of evangelism, as many of you have experienced pretty recently, now when you go to tell somebody, you're telling them the same thing you heard, and that's this, you're not good. And though God has shown his love for you, his wrath abides on you. Whoa, Uh, that's a U-turn, right? In the church today, that is a U-turn to hear that. That is like running into a brick wall. You hear that God's wrath abides on you, and you as a sinner do not stand in good favor with God. You don't. And so, in light of that backdrop, brother, just telling people that God loves them is, is, is no sufficient news. In fact, it's, it's poison for them. It, it is nothing that will be of any benefit for them. But third, and this one kind of is related to the, the first, but I've, I wanted to put this one in here because... Uh, As I go through this, I I want to be clear on this point later. But the third is simply this. There are benefits of being saved that are not the gospel. Brethren, there are consequences of believing upon Jesus Christ that you enjoy as a Christian. And I'll tell you what, you're going to hear a lot of them today. And there are things to be had by being united to Jesus Christ that you have because of the gospel. But brother, those things you possess because of the gospel are not themselves the gospel. It, it, to put it another way, are not the things that save you. Right? You can have a relationship where you come and are united to Jesus Christ and you have all of the blessings that flow through Jesus Christ to you, but those blessings are not the thing that save you. And they don't actually mark you out ultimately as the people of God. What well, marks you out as the person of God, as the people of God, is clinging to Jesus Christ. That's it. And brother, everything else is just, it's, it's like the cherry on top or gravy on top of the mashed potatoes. However, whatever analogy you want in your mind for food, whatever you like. Brother, that, everything else, the benefits that come with being made right with God, they are they are glorious and beautiful, but they don't save you. They are not the gospel that you hear to have good news to then be saved. So those are a few things I think that we need to be aware of, that as you run into other people, especially knock in church, we are going to run into people who claim themselves to be Christians, and they probably believe one of these three things. That's just, a, that's just a, a, a probably a matter of fact. Where we live in America, especially in Las Vegas, go around door knocking, and a majority of people who call themselves Christians probably believe, in, to some extent, one of these things. And so we need to know that. And we need to be very aware that the good news we're bringing is not that. We're bringing a, a, a whole different kind of good news. A good news that they still need to hear and they still need to believe. So that's kind of missing the mark. So... Here's, here, here, here's the, the positive aspect of this. And I've just kind of entitled this the standard definition. And I don't have any qualms with the standard definition. But here is what, okay, so if that's all error, okay, what, what is the gospel that is correct? What is the content of that? How, how would we begin to think about what, okay, if that misses the mark, what hits the mark? And brethren, most of the time, the gospel, as it relates to evangelism and its proclamation, is simply summed up in this: that the gospel and evangelism is simply the faithful proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. And you can think of a text, you don't even have to turn there. you can just hear it. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17 to 20. Paul says this. He says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. All this is from God." "...who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation." So here's this ministry that Paul has from God. It's this ministry of reconciliation through Messiah. And he says this, "...that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ." proclaimers of this message we are ambassadors for christ god making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of christ be reconciled to god and that's a great summary right there of what of what yes we do in evangelism is we go out and the bible tells you not only are, are you to go and make proclamation, but church, by default of being a church and being Christians, you are a proclaimer of these things. Did, uh, did you catch what he said? If, you're, if you've been moved from old to new... Old creation, new creation, old things have passed away, new things have come. Uh, There is just an assumption from that, that you have been given a ministry from God. And that is the ministry of Christ reconciling the world to himself. And you are therefore a messenger and an ambassador of that message. And in church, I, I want to say with triple amens here that this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of what we proclaim in evangelism. But as we begin to work through a little bit more of that content, because there's a lot of assumptions in what I just said, as we begin to work through this second point about what the content of that is, I do want you for a second to now think back to that first verse I read of what Jesus says His ministry is marked by. Because we need to be able to see That the the Bible says a whole number of different things when it comes to this proclamation of this gospel, of this good news. Because, brethren, while what I just said and read from 2 Corinthians is is true as long as the sky is blue. uh, There's more to it than that. There is more to the message than simply that. It's not less than that but there is more to it than that. And I want to challenge you here to think the way that the scripture thinks and not the way you've been told to think, not the way you've read on a website or you've read some article or some book that told you what evangelism is and what the gospel is, but that you went to scripture and you took all of it and said, this is what scripture says evangelism is. This is what it says the content of the gospel is. And we are content with that. And I want us to be challenged to to be able to do that because if you were to ask yourself of what I just said, uh, that standard definition of evangelism is, is is that really what Scripture says about it? For you, can you answer that? Is that really what Scripture says about that? Like if if I pulled you aside and says, hey, tell me what evangelism and the gospel is. Is that what it says? And bro, I'm not trying to put anyone on the spot. I just want you to think. Have you assumed what you've been told, or have you read it from God as God told it to you in His Word? And I want, us to be a, I, want to, I want us to be a church who knows what the Scriptures say. Books are helpful, brethren. Look around. We got them right up here and everywhere if you go to any of our houses. But books don't give us absolute truth. They are reflections of it if they, are, if they are to teach it correctly. Brethren, we need it from Scripture. So is that really what the good news is that we proclaim? Because if we're going to be evangelistic, if we're going to, we're going to attempt to be faithful in any way to that calling, uh, we've got to be marked out by people who, one, not only proclaim it, but they know exactly what it is. Well, we've got to know it. We've got to know it, and then we need to be faithful to proclaim it. So here's part two of this. What is the content? What is the good news? Now I'm going to make an argument for uh, two different things. I want you to I want you to hear this like this. It's almost like a coin. You got two sides to a coin. And I want to present it this way. And then I want to give you a bunch of scriptural proofs and work through this so that you can see this from scripture and not just from me. But I want to say this, church. I believe that the gospel that we are to proclaim in evangelism, while it contains the forgiveness of sins and at its heart is reconciliation with God, that means being made right to God by having your sin forgiven, being made right, there's more to it than that. And that's this. One side of that coin is that. It is the forgiveness of sins. It is being made right with God. But as Jesus himself comes on the scene in his own day, in his own ministry, he does not come and say, repent and have your sins forgiven. What does he say in Matthew chapter four that we read? Read it like three times. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And notice that there's a comment before that, that Jesus began preaching this. This was Jesus's, this is his preaching, this is his gospel, this is his evangelism to the people around him. And he starts telling them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And brethren, we have to be able to take that at face value and accept it. But we, but we, we need to know, okay, if, if the gospel... Uh, is is, is held up as the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus comes in and starts proclaiming repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we need to understand that both of those come together and mesh beautifully and are simply two sides of one coin. But we also need to understand that they are distinct sides of that coin and that they are both part of the gospel message that we proclaim in evangelism. So let me go with the first side of that coin, and that is the one we've already talked about what is often presented in a gospel presentation when it comes to evangelism. Because, brethren, though it, it, we might simply call it standard or simple, don't ever let those words deter you from loving it the, way, the same way we just sang it in those songs. I want you to cherish it like it's new to you every day. But this first part of the content is going to be this. The, 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 the heart, the core of this message that we proclaim is this. It's reconciliation with God. That is simply saying, how can a sinner be made right with God? How can that relationship be mended? How can the sinner who has rebelled against God and now finds himself at odds with God because he's rebelled against him, be made right with that God? And that is that first part of this. So I want to do this, and we have a lot of scripture to get through, so I'm going to just start reading. You're going to have to start flipping and start taking notes. So, reconciliation with God. And I'm going to do this just the way that I like to do this. There's a million ways to do this, but I'm going to do it my way. Well, God's way. Well, maybe a little bit of both. That sounds kind of bad to say God's way. Um, But I want to show you that this reconciliation with God actually is also something that we don't just proclaim that's brand new in the New Testament. This is a theme that runs through the Bible so that when we consider that the Bible would say we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ as Christians to proclaim reconciliation with those who are perishing, that it's true. So, in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and I have... I have had opportunity to teach this a few times, so this might be new for some of you. For some of you, this just might be a good refresh. But here's what you have going on, right? Beginning of the story, beginning of your Bible, beginning of God portraying the narrative of history right here, telling the story of redemption, literally commenting on how things have uh, been going on since the beginning of time. This is God telling us this. And here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, We find that God has created earth, and in Genesis chapter 2, He creates Eden to be a special place where He dwells with His people. And if you were paying attention, what did I read at the beginning in our Old Testament reading? I read Genesis chapter 1, and in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, we get the mandate that goes to Adam, and by extension, Eve as his helper, to expand God's kingdom in his glory across the face of the earth. He says to do what? He says to have dominion, or another word you can think of, have rule, have kingship, have, 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 have lordship over it, rule it on my behalf. So Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that right at the beginning of this story is God dwelling with a people, and he wants those people to, to not only dwell with him, but expand that dwelling place across the face of the earth, With what goal? That the entire earth now is God's dwelling place. It's not just Eden in this one little place. It's the whole entire earth. But if you've read the first few chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, what was supposed to be Adam taking dominion, Adam ruling on behalf of God and spreading that glory across the face of the earth, of Adam living in peace and fellowship with God, we have him falling into sin. We have Adam and Eve falling into sin, and as as Paul would state in Romans chapter 5, he says through the one man's transgression um, came sin to all, that all were were plunged into sin because of Adam's transgression. And And you hear it as God comes to Adam and He says, he, he, he says this to him, he says, listen, you're going to be cursed, everything that you do is going to be struggle and toil, sweating uh, by, by your brow because uh, uh, of what you did and your sin and your work is going to be cursed, but we get that promise and that curse upon the serpent who deceived them. And he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So right at the beginning of the story, we have the backdrop that says there needs to be something made right here. There needs to be a reconciling act by God for Adam and Eve, and by extension, the rest of humanity, because right at the beginning, we have a break in that relationship. We have a break in the communion. We have a break in them walking with God. And so right at the beginning, this idea that the gospel brings to us that we are ambassadors seeking to reconcile people back to God can be traced right back here to the beginning of the story. Brethren, this is not new. This is where history has been going towards since the beginning of time. God sought to dwell with us, and we spurned it, and we rebelled, and we fell in Adam, and we hate God naturally apart from Jesus Christ because of it. And so, how can one be reconciled to God? If there has been sin now done, and it is now accounted on our behalf as guilt, we need reconciliation. We need it to be made right. Because as the psalmist is going to say, uh, justice is, is the pillar of God's throne, and righteousness is his, is his foot. I mean, brethren, God is a holy God, a righteous God, a just God. He has to do something with that sin. He has to do something with that rebellion. He cannot let it slide. He must deal with it. And you see in the beginning of Genesis, he does. He tells them you'll die, and they don't die that day. Who dies in their place? An animal, because he covers them with skins. And you get this picture right at the beginning that there is going to have to be somebody that steps in for them. They cannot atone for it, right? They made their own clothes. They made silly garments, right, that they sewed together. And God had to come in and step in and do it for them. So we need to ask them, what is the thing that Scripture paints for us that says, how can one be made right with God? If there's sin on the table, it needs to be removed. How can it be removed? And Hebrews will tell us how this sin is removed. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Hebrews 9, 22 says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And then hear this, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Remember, like I just told you, what happens right at the beginning of Genesis? Whoever wrote Hebrews, they're not foolish in this regard. They understand the story. They know if you're going to be reconciled to God, blood's going to be shed. It has to. God must be just in dealing with sin. Blood has to be shed. So right there at the beginning of Genesis, you have this. And notice, though, that after that happens, what Adam does and what the Lord did, right? So there's this promise of judgment, of a curse upon them, but also a promise that somebody is going to come and do it. Because he says what? There's going to be a seed that come and crushes the head of the serpent. There will be one who comes in and steps in their place. And I think Adam believes this. So in, in Genesis 3:20 it says this: the man. So this is after God has done talking with them, and now you get kind of commentary on like, all right, that whole thing happened. that was a mess. Now there's a little bit of commentary on this. It says this: the man called his wife's name Eve, and you may have a footnote, um, and you probably do in your Bible, but Eve is very similar to another word, and it, it is it is very similar to the word life giver. So he says, man called his well, he names his wife still says, man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Well, he just said, "Cursed are you. But well, what else did he hear? Someone's coming to step in to reconcile. And Adam believes it. So he names her Eve. Says, she will be the mother of all the living. There is going to be one that's going to come. Death will not have the final say in this. And then you see the Lord makes those goat skins for them. So right there you have this, this idea. Shedding of blood is going to take place. Someone's going to step in for them and is going to do this. And you get the same thing as, as, the, as the story keeps unfolding. Right? So in Leviticus chapter 17, beginning in verse 11, you have this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for, on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by, by the life. So here again. God is carrying this principle through. The standard has not changed. Israel is brought out of Egypt, brought out of slavery, and they still have sin to be dealt with, and God makes it clear. Blood must be shed for sin to be dealt with. Even a redeemed people of God out of slavery still need redemption from sin because it separates. They come out and they sin, and God says, I'm going to burn these people. Like Moses, we're starting over these people, I'm done with them. They got sin. I can't be around them. He's a holy God. And this is put in place so that the people can still dwell amongst this holy God. And the way they do it is through blood. The way they do it is through sacrifice. The way they do it is somebody stepping in their place and the blood being shed. And our Lord Jesus picks this up. And church, you've heard this just a few weeks ago. And I really hope you're just getting this picture in your mind as we partake of this and just really think about the message that you proclaim to others is the message that you have demonstrated right before you. So Matthew twenty six, twenty eight. what does Jesus say about the cup that he is about to give them to drink? He says this, drink of it all of you, speaking of this cup, verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, for many, for what? For just remembrance sake? For just good old time? It's for the forgiveness of sins. You see that? And then the author of Hebrews says the very same thing that we started with. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. It was so in the beginning. It was so for the people of God in the Old Testament. And brethren, it's no different from us. If we're to be reconciled back to this holy God, we need blood shed. We need one to step in our place because our offense to that God is going to call us into account. And let me tell you this, this God does not dwell with this sin. So though that promise rang true in Genesis, and Adam believed the promise, hear this, Genesis 3, a few verses later. says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 23. Therefore. The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground for which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Brethren, God is serious about not dwelling with sin. He made a promise to them, and then he still cast them out. Uh, An angel standing with a sword ready to slaughter. I mean, you got to think about that. This is not just a cute, fancy, like statue image of some angel sitting there. This angel is wielding a sword ready to slaughter them. You don't get to just come unto God anymore. Blood is going to be shed. It's going to be yours or you need someone to do it or you're not going through. You're just not. You're not passing through. But brethren, to remain outside of God's presence is to remain outside in death. The, the, the Old Testament speaks of this. To, to be removed from the camp is to be removed from the land of the living. To be outside of the temple and the worship of God. What does David say about being in the temple is just a, a lowly person. He says, one day inside of your courts is better than a thousand removed. Why? Because, brethren, to be in the courts of God is to be with Him. It's to have life. To be outside it's to experience death. And you get this here in Numbers. I want you to hear this in Numbers chapter 33. This is Numbers 33 beginning in verse 50. And I want you to notice who the driving out of this is, who is not able to enter. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land. Where do we hear that word? We heard it in Genesis. God drove out Adam and Eve from his presence. And now he's telling Israel, when you go into the land, there's idolaters in the land. You are to drive them out, all of them. He says, 52, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. Then why is that? Because God dwells with that people and He can't dwell with sin. You see in it? He can't dwell with sin. The shedding of the blood is the only way you can dwell with God. He can't dwell with sin. Matthew chapter 10. The same image is, is here, but now, now, now notice who's the one doing this. Who is the one who's going to start rendering out those who can come to God and those who can't? And this is going to be Jesus Christ Himself. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, He says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Brethren, Jesus Christ now is the one coming out to separate people. He is like the angel in Genesis. No other way to the Father except through Him. And He's going to separate out those who have come through the blood or are going to go through their own blood. Brethren, Jesus Christ is now, He's going to start setting mother and father apart, sister and brother apart, because it is not just a family familial relation that will make you Christian. Brethren, you have to have His blood. You have to have someone else's blood, or He will separate you out. That's Jesus Christ. He says, I've come to bring the sword. And we get the same picture of Jesus Christ in Revelation. Same picture of him in Revelation. Listen to what he's doing. This this is the same Jesus whom you get presented to you, like I said earlier, of just people wanting to talk about the love of God with no backdrop to this. But brethren, God is love, and he loves a lot of different things. But look what he loves. He loves holiness. It's Revelation chapter 19, beginning of verse 11. Says Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus Christ. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And in the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven... Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth, here it comes again, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the, of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his side was written a name written, King of kings and Lord, of Lords. Brethren, Jesus Christ will not dwell amongst the people with sin. So if you think that Jesus Christ is yours, if you think that you have him by name, if you think that you have him by familial relation, if you think you have him just because of something you've done, something in your life to earn Jesus Christ, you need to think again. Jesus Christ is not one to be had simply because he's a token for you to carry around. Jesus Christ is only had through the shedding of blood. He will not have it any other way, and he won't have you any other way. It's either your life or someone else's. And brother, we know this. We know this, that the Old Testament hope was this. In Isaiah 53, who is that person? Yeah, Jesus Christ is the one to protect who the people of God are, who they are, to block entrance to God's presence. But brother, who offers us entrance to to, to God through His own blood? Who is the one? Well, it's Jesus Christ Himself. And you get this in Isaiah 53. We could read the whole thing, but I'm going to read a section of it. I'm going to. I'm just going to start right at the beginning. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, and this is speaking of Jesus Christ, he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, listen to this. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. Brethren, pierced for our sins. Someone's blood was shed, and it was His. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Brethren, reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. God has decided to make His dwelling place with His people. And God has decided to make His dwelling place to be over the face of the whole earth. But brethren, God cannot dwell among sin. And you, my friends, all of us in here, have sin. The only question is, what will be done with it for you? It's not a question if you have it. You have it. Friend, believe it. He says, for all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each according to his own way. You need the man who bears our sorrows and griefs and was pierced for us, or you will be. Right? That is the picture, Jesus Christ coming out of heaven, ready to trample his enemies. But for his friends, for those who would look to him, for those who would recognize, God, you're right, this is yours, and you can't dwell with me, and I have sin, and I need it taken care of. Well, friends, Jesus Christ presents Himself to you as a friend. He tells you to come unto Him. And Brethren, this is the heart of this gospel. This is the heart of what we would proclaim to lost and dying people. Because, brethren, what we're going to talk about after this will do nobody any good if they have not had the shed blood painted over themselves. If they don't have Jesus Christ's white robes like those armies of heaven, uh, they are robed in white linen and it's not theirs. Right? It mimics their high priest. It mimics Jesus Christ's white robe. And if you don't have that, if you don't have the shedding of blood, God will not dwell among you. And get that fact straight. It's not that you can't simply dwell among God. God's dwelling here, and He won't dwell among you. What was the psalm that Nick was reading today? What was the refrain in that psalm? The wicked, though they seem to prosper, will be what? They'll be uprooted and cast out. Brethren, they will not remain, because this is God's dwelling place. Earth did not cease to be where God wants to dwell because of the fall. He doesn't just abide in some heavenly sanctuary locked in a closet full of angels in fairy pixie dust. God intends to dwell here. This is His. Earth is His footstool. And church, when you're proclaiming this message and we think about what the content, the heart of this is, is God will not dwell among us. He will not have us unless we have the blood. But then what? He will have us. What does it say at the end of Isaiah 53? Therefore, I will divide him, speaking of Jesus Christ, a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. It was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So, brethren, the heart of this gospel, the heart of what every single person needs to hear is, you need to be made right with God. That's it. If you're going to get one side of the coin right, get that one right. You need to proclaim reconciliation, and you need to proclaim the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ's name. Scripture would have us to say it no other way. But Brethren, on the other side of this coin is what I want to get to because I want you to understand, and you probably can see it a little bit, as we just simply read through those different scriptures through the Bible, that message does not come to us arbitrarily. The forgiveness of sins, the need to be forgiven, the need to be made right with God, is not just like, that just is what it is, right? That's not how scripture presents the need for us. It, 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 it has way more depth to it. That message finds its location within a broader story. And what was that story? We already talked about it. God intends to dwell among a people. The earth is His, and He will not have sin dwell among Him. So that message of being reconciled to to Him stands in the backdrop of that larger message. God is intending to dwell on the earth with His people, and the only people that are going to dwell upon that earth are those who are covered in the blood. And so we, we have to recognize that because here's what tends to happen, church, and here's what I don't want for us, and we'll get to this as we hit our last couple points, but at least under the content, what we don't want to happen is that's simply all we tell people to do. Because, brother, you're not simply being forgiven and reconciled back, and, back to God. Just, he just wants the sin gone and done. No more. Right? It's, it's just not like you're forgiven and then God walks away. And then there's no more for him to say to you. There's no more for you to proclaim. There's no more for you to do or for you to live like it. That's not the gospel. If the gospel was, "We just need to get their slate clean," then there would have been no need to write this. Jesus could have came. He could have died upon the cross, He could have rose again, said, "You guys are all forgiven. We're good. No more worries. Bre, we know that's not the story of the Bible. We know that's not where everything is going, and so we need to understand that there is another aspect to the gospel to the good news that the bible and the new testament make explicitly clear is a part of our proclamation and it's coupled with that proclamation it comes with proclaiming the forgiveness of sins but the forgiveness of sins also comes with something else and it's what we read at the beginning of what jesus says he says this repent for what for the kingdom of god is at hand so on this flip side of the coin, I've said this. The good news is also the good news of the gospel of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And I know you're probably scratching your head a little bit because you're not really sure what that means or maybe why we have to deal with that. But I want, to, I just, I want you to kind of hear this. I'm going to knock that over. I want you to just hear this. So you don't think that I'm just offering some, something else out to you, and there, there's like no background for this within Scripture. So I just want you to hear just a, this, and I could have pulled 250 instances of this in Scripture in the New Testament alone, but I chose just six just to be helpful. So here's a couple of these. I want you to hear that phrase and what goes along with it. So this is Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Um, And it says this, in the days of John the Baptist came, uh, in those days, speaking of John the Baptist, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And here's what John the Baptist was preaching at that time Jesus um, came uh, came in his first advent. He says this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's he preaching? He's preaching the kingdom of heaven, right? So he is talking about something, something related to this kingdom, something related to to much, something much broader than simply the forgiveness of sins. He's telling people, yes, repent, because this thing is, is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same thing we saw in Matthew chapter 4. We get to the end of this. There is this quotation of Matthew, of the prophet Isaiah, and we read Isaiah. We read that in Isaiah, there's going to be this mountain, this, this mountain where people stream up, the nations will flow up to it. And Isaiah is talking about a very similar thing. There is now light that has been shown upon the Gentiles. And then Matthew concludes this by including what Jesus says he preached about. What is, Jesus be, what is he preaching about as he going along in his ministry? He says this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we find this not just in what Jesus preached, but what in the early church was preaching. We find this in the apostles. So, Okay, you could think, okay, maybe Jesus was talking about something a little bit different. But, you know, when we get to the apostles, you know, they're just all about forgiveness of sins. But I want you to hear this too. So in in Acts, look right at the beginning of Acts chapter 1. I'm just going to, and I'm going to be reading some of these short verses because we can't spend all day going through um, larger sections of this. But just Acts chapter 1, and this is in verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, he says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. Not just the forgiveness of sins. You can, you can rest assured the forgiveness of sins is in here, but it says the kingdom of God. And then I want you to notice this as well, Acts 19. All right, and I got a few more. So it's Acts 19, verse 8. This is speaking of Paul in Ephesus. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, it's part of it. Persuading them about what?
1: Kingdom of God. End of Acts.
0: What do we, we find Paul doing right at the end of Acts? And you think about this, Acts is bookmarked by this. Third verse in the book, last couple verses in the book. This is Acts 28, 23. It says this When They had appointed a day for him. They came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening he expounded them. This is speaking of Paul. And This is what he's expounding to them. Preaching to him. Giving exposition for and is expounding. He's testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law and Moses and from the prophets. And this continues. Revelation chapter 11. And I'm I'm beating this thing for a reason. Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever Brethren, the the trumpet call that resounds through the ages is this yes it is that god intends to reconcile the world through himself through the forgiveness of sins. But brethren, it is also this. It is about a kingdom that is passing, the kingdom of this world, becoming our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's kingdom. And that is good news to do what? Proclaim. To evangelize. To speak. But brethren, if you, if, if you think that I'm, uh, I'm pulling that out of thin air, then we have to be able to deal with Scriptures saying that, and those were just a few instances. So, what is this good news then of the kingdom? Okay, you're like, okay, I see it, it's there. Well, now you gotta explain it to me, and I will definitely do that. So, what is this good news then? How is the proclamation? Because think of it, that's kind of weird for us in this room. It's gotta seem weird. Jesus comes, repent, the kingdom of God's at hand, and we're all like, what does that mean, Jesus? Like. They understood it, right? They have a backdrop. We don't have a backdrop for this. So what is this kingdom? Well, this kingdom is this, and we started on this in, in Genesis. So I'm not going to belabor the point in Genesis, but we saw already there what God intends to do from the beginning. His dwelling place with people is the place in which His presence is made known, but where God's presence is is also where His rule is. Where God dwells, he rules. There's no other. There's no there's no up and comer. There's no person ruling next to him. Where God where he dwells, where he settles, he rules there. And by making us to dwell around with him, he expects his rulership, his dominion and his authority and power to rule over us. And so, what you already have built into that idea of this is this. Where do we find rulership? lordship dominion where do we find that in find that in a kingdom that is the context of a kingdom so right there in genesis we have this formation of a kingdom this is god's kingdom and what does he tell adam and eve to do with it expand it have dominion over everything because i have dominion over it. expand that glory and that's adam's task that's what he's given You know, there's a a guy who says it this way. That's like Adam's great commission right there. Go out and accomplish this task. Spread my glory over the face of the earth. But obviously, like we read in talking about the gospel, is we know that instead of that happening, instead of God's kingdom expanding through His dominion, what kingdom is started? Well, it's, it, 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 it's a kingdom that is counter to that kingdom. It's sin, brethren. It's sin comes in and the curse comes in and it keeps God's kingdom from spreading. And what spreads? What kingdom begins to spread? Sin and the, and the dominion of Satan, right? It's, it, it says that those who are unsaved, what does it say about us? We were under someone's dominion. We were under somebody's power. We walked according to Him, brethren. He had a controlling power over us. So there is a kingdom that comes in there, and it's because of sin's curse. And you can see this in in Genesis chapter 4, because what happens immediately after sin gets its grip and its dominion? What happens in Genesis chapter 4? The two who would seem to potentially be, there maybe is that seed of the woman right there. And what happens to the seed? He's slain he's murdered. Cain kills his brother. And notice what God says to him. He says, the Lord said to Cain, this is Genesis 4 verse 6, he says this, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at its door. Its desire is for you, but it must, but you must what? Rule over it. You must have dominion over it. But who has dominion over what in that instance? Sin does, brethren. Sin has dominion over his heart. He kills his brother in rage and murders him. So we see that that kingdom is not doing what it was supposed to do. In fact, this other kingdom, this this, this kingdom of Satan, this curse of sin, is actually intruding its way into God's kingdom. And so we get that promise right here. And then we get this beautiful promise throughout all the scripture. And I would really just like you to hear these because I just I want you to see that the hope laid out is that somebody is going to come and he is going to establish a kingdom so that when we get to the New Testament and Jesus stands up and we hear it with fresh ears and he says, repent, the kingdom of God's at hand, you go, no way. It's here. Because, brother, it just I, I hate it because my own heart doesn't do it. We just do not hear it with the force that it would have hit them. And not even close. Because we just don't understand that with the kingdom came a whole lot of other things. Yes, forgiveness of sins, but more than that came. Way more than that came. So I want you to hear this. This is just a few splotches throughout the New Old Testament. I'm not going to read all of them. So Genesis 17 I'm going to start in verse 6. This is God's promise to Abraham. And he says this to him, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And who's going to come from Abraham? Kings will come from Abraham. Look on over to verse 16, and he says this as well. And I will bless her. And he's speaking of, of, of Abram's wife, Sarai, or Sarah. And I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations kings of people shall come from her. So brethren, okay, we're, what are kings tied with? I know I'm asking the same rhetorical question over and over again. I just want you to get it. Kings are tied with what? Kingdoms. They're tied with kingdoms. So the promise for these kings to come about is a promise for what to come about? A kingdom. What's it going to do? Well, we're going to get that in Genesis 2, Genesis 49. What are these? What ultimately we know there's going to be one king. There's going to be the king who comes from these kings. And what's he going to do? This is Genesis 49. I'm going to begin in verse eight. Read to verse ten. So this is a promise. This is this is Jacob blessing one of his sons, and in doing so, he's extending that same promise that Abraham got from Abraham to himself and now to his son. And he says it like this in verse, uh, verse 8, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Why? They're kings. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. Now listen to this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. All of a sudden we have one. Now to him, just this one. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Who, who are the people going to obey? The king. He's got a scepter and rod in his hand. This, is, this guy's ruling. And what's he going to do? He's going to reverse it. brother. So the king promised with this kingdom is going to do what? He's going to reverse that old order that came in through sin. Satan's dominion is going to fall by the wayside and the kingdom that was supposed to come in and expand is going to do so. That is the promise that's being held out right there. So, go on to numbers 24, numbers 24 verse 17. So, this is another this is another promise, this is another uh, prophecy concerning this. And this time you got a uh, you got a Pagan prophet who thinks he knows the Lord, speaking a true thing about the about, about this true uh, prophet that's going to come, this true King that's going to come. And notice what Balaam says uh, about him in verse seventeen. He says, "I see him." So this this singular one again. I see him, but not now. And I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And what's it going to do? Listen to that language right there. It shall crush. The forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. What was the promise in Genesis? Someone's gonna come and do what? The seed's gonna come and do what? Crush the head of the serpent. So now this king's gonna come with this scepter rule and he's gonna start crushing a forehead. Hey, he's trying to draw that out for you. This king is going to come. He, and the way you're going to know he brings his kingship and his kingdom is he's going to crush the forehead of God's enemies. In Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. So, Deuteronomy 17, I'm going to read verse 14 through 20. These are laws right here that are specifically uh, being given to Israel about. What Israel's king is supposed to be like when God appoints for them a king? And I want you to hear these same things that uh, we've been hearing. So verse 14, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to turn to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again, and you shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Look at verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom this is what this king's going to do. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Brother, I have one more. I could list off a bunch more, but we got to fly. So this is Psalm 8. I want you to flip open to Psalm 8. So those first four that I just read for you are all promises that God gave of a coming king who's going to bring a kingdom. And now in Psalm 8, what you're going to get is reflection upon God's promises, The psalmist here who is David, and think of who David is, he is the king of Israel who's received these promises, and he knows that he's receiving those promises in line from Genesis all the way to himself. The promise to him is not separated from the rest of the Bible, and I want you to hear how he's interpreting those promises. So all the promises that were made, now David is telling you, and he's giving you commentary on them, he's telling you what it's going to look like. So I'm going to start here in verse five, or excuse me, in verse three. Verse three says, One, I look at the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And I have made mention of this before, and I'm going to make mention of it again. Here, what you have right here is David describing himself, but what you don't hear in our translation is what I would want you to hear in this. Is he saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? And then he says, the son of man that you care for him. And the reason that phrase is important is because what you could render that as, and what you should render it as, is saying, what is, is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of Adam that you care for him? Because who was Adam's son going to be? He was going to be Eve's seed. He was going to be the one who was going to crush the head of the serpent. And then look at verse five. Here's why I conclude that. Look what this look what this son of man does. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And what's he doing? What's he going out and doing? You have given him dominion over the work of your hands and you've put all things under his feet. What's he putting under his feet? He's putting creation under his feet. Sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heaven, fish of the sea, whatever passes along. So here David is giving you and he's like wrapping up all the, all the promises in the Old Testament regarding this and painting a picture for you in the Old Testament that there is a coming kingdom with a coming king who is going to reverse sin and the curse and that wicked order and he's going to establish his own. And we've read these a number of times too. And I don't want you to flip to these because I just want you to hear these. But Daniel chapter 7, we hear this in Daniel chapter 7. And we read this one in a sermon one time. Daniel 7.13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. There's that phrase again. One like the Son of Man, and He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. What's given to Him? What is given to Him? And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And now, I want you to start looking at the signs that this kingdom is here. What starts happening when this kingdom comes? That peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him, and that His dominions and everlasting dominion, which shall not pass in His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And brethren, we heard that when we read Isaiah 2, did we not? There is this new mountain of God that is established on the highest of hills, and who starts flowing up to it? What is the result of this new kingdom, of this new mountain being established? Nations are flowing up to Him. Peoples are coming up to this kingdom. And the same thing in Isaiah 65. I'm not going to read all of it, but in Isaiah 65, you have the same description of this, of this new heavens and this new earth, this kingdom that is coming down and invading the old one and what its result is going to be. And I just want you to hear these things because notice, church, notice this. Forgiveness of sins is a part But it's not, I want you to listen to all the benefits that come with this kingdom. If these nations are starting to come when this kingdom arrives and this king arrives, what else comes with it? Notice what he says, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. shall be the days of my people be. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. There are too many things in there and too many details to get through, trust me, today. But when this kingdom comes, there is a stark reality of everything else that comes with it. And it's everything. It, it, it touches I mean, what part of life does this kingdom that comes with this king not touch? It touches everything. It is not just a proclamation here of the forgiveness of sins. It is this idea that the kingdom, when it comes, is going to change everything. And it's going to touch every aspect of life. And this is to be what? Good news. It's to be good news for us to hear. And brethren, I've I've preached this before and I'm just going to preach it again. It's here now. Acts chapter 2 makes it very clear to us that this kingdom is here now. Acts chapter 2 and 29, this is Peter telling the church, and he's telling us, listen, Jesus Christ has died, was buried, and he's been raised. Here's what it means. Here's what it means that Jesus Christ has been raised, the one who they thought was this king. What is with him? He says brothers i may say to you with confidence about the patriarch david that he both died and was buried and his tomb is still with us to this day being therefore a prophet and knowing that god had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of christ that he was not abandoned to hades nor did his flesh see corruption this jesus god raised up and of that we are all witnesses Here's what's important about this raising, what he says in verse 33. Being therefore, this raising up was not just life from death. It's not just raising a body out of the ground. It is this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What is the Lord saying to Jesus Christ? Rule. dominion, Brother, what's happened? The king's arrived. He's here. And his kingdom is here. And the full force and weight of that kingdom has now presently arrived. Jesus tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees of his day, Matthew chapter 12, what? If I'm doing these things that you claim to be done by Satan, but I do them by the Spirit, then know this, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And brother, the reality is we know that they were blaspheming the Spirit because the kingdom had come upon them. Brethren, the kingdom is here. And so that, that, that gets us right to this. Peter stands up at Pentecost and we want to portray this as the first sermon in the church and it was and it's a glorious sermon and he proclaims the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ and it is that good news that causes people to repent. And I want you to believe that and I want you to hear that because brother, it's, yes, what comes with the kingdom? The forgiveness of sins. And Jesus tells him, listen, unless you're born again, you don't even enter the kingdom, right? If you're not born again and you come unto God and have your sins forgiven, you don't enter in. But brethren, don't let yourself be constricted with saying less than what the Bible says about the gospel and about the good news that we, that we are going to proclaim. Because it, it, it's not just simply this. And when we think about what our goal is now in evangelism, if, if that is what the scriptures present to us as the gospel, that it's the forgiveness of sins, and it's this arrival of the kingdom, and all these benefits with it, and that is to actually be proclaimed to people, then what we don't want to do if we are going to go out and be evangelistic is this. We don't want to just deliver arbitrariness to people. We don't want to tell them, just have your sins forgiven. But God cares nothing else of how you then live. God cares nothing else for what the church then does. Because brethren, the reason you are to have your sins forgiven is so that you can then step into that kingdom that's arrived and be a member of it. Be a priest of it. Be a proclaimer of it. Invite people into this kingdom. Because, brethren, if our goal in evangelism is to proclaim this unto the world, then we can't just deliver empty words. We can't just deliver to people, be forgiven, and that's it. We need to be telling people that the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom, and this gospel of the kingdom is this. Jesus Christ is Lord, and His kingdom is now. And you ought to repent and obey the Son, unless you perish in the way. And we ought to proclaim to them the benefits that come along with this kingdom and why they ought to repent and follow after Jesus Christ. But church, if, if the Bible presents that to us in evangelism in our gospel proclamation, we have got to be able to hold on to both of those things because they're not at odds with each other. In fact, they are interwoven together. Because, and, and this is not my analogy. I was talking about this with Nick just just last night. And I just, just imagine this because this was a great illustration. And imagine you the rebel, right? You got sin that needs to be dealt with. You're rebelling against the king in his kingdom in this land. And he comes to you, sword drawn, has every right and intention to be able to kill you. And he says, you know what? I'm going to show you mercy. Your sins are forgiven. And you're like, whoa, really? Just free pardon? I don't have to do anything for it? And he goes, yeah, yeah, free pardon. Never come back. And he points to the wilderness.
1: Empty, dead wilderness. Is that good news? Hey, he's not being slayed with the sword.
0: He's going to go die in the wilderness. Brethren, that is not what Jesus Christ does for us, and that is not what we proclaim to the world, because that is not what Jesus Christ is going to set up. That's not what He's doing now. That's not what He's proclaiming to the world. Brethren, when we have our sins forgiven, the King comes to you and says, you know what? Free pardon. Forgiveness of sins. And then He puts the sword away, and He brings you in. And then you sit at the table, and you're a with, with, with fine linen and you get to feast at his table and you get to enjoy the extents of his kingdom and you are now someone who participates in in making sure that his kingdom continues to expand, that his name is upheld, that those who are in the land who disobey the king are pushed out and that there is a thriving kingdom in which you are one of his regents and taken care of. Brother, that is a story of redemption right there. That is a story of being redeemed from one Thing to the other, of being a rebel to now being a servant. It is not just your slates wiped clean, now good luck. Brother, that's important for us because if what everything is being worked out in this life and what we're looking for towards the end is that Jesus Christ would dwell and sit upon his throne and that the whole earth would be covered with his glory, then that has to be a message we proclaim. We need to know that that final end goal for us brethren is that the earth would be covered with the glory of God and that that as our end goal is our future reality we're looking to as we seek to proclaim the gospel. As we seek to be an evangelistic church, brethren, that's the only end I want you to have in your mind. I'm doing this because that will be the end of history. Jesus Christ will have that. And you'll have it either with us proclaiming it or without us proclaiming it. But brethren, why would you not come into and enjoy and be a part of, of what God has forgiven you to do? He's forgiven you so you can be a part of that and you can enjoy that so that that goal in evangelism could be reached, that that end goal would be there. For Brenna, I think even more close to us here in home now, it would be that as we work through this day in and day out, as we even seek to go out this next Saturday, That we would have success. That we would have success in our endeavors. That we would not go out Saturday knowing no one's going to believe, but we're going anyway. But brethren, that is not what Jesus Christ has called us to. Jesus Christ has called us to go and be faithful servants and be faithful ambassadors and faithful witnesses to this message. Because there's a guarantee that at the end of all things, when it's all wrapped up, that it's going to be Christ's that it's going to be his, that people will come and they will hear. And not only will they hear, but it will they will be transformed by the power of this gospel, that the gospel of the kingdom will come in and it won't just forgive a bunch of people, it'll change a bunch of people. That the good news that comes with it is that they sit under Jesus Christ's rule and reign. And when he dictates to us how we ought to live and how we ought to walk, how we ought to think, how we ought to speak, that there is life-giving, transformational reality to that. That that's there.
1: Now, brethren, I know as we go out, people will
0: not hear it that we will face difficulty with this. And so listen, I know you in here who have been going out with us faithfully. And I do not want you to be discouraged to go and to do that because I'm not saying that if you just go out and do it, It's just going to happen. But, brethren, we are guaranteed that if we would pray unto God, that we would be faithful to this message, that we would proclaim the forgiveness of sins and the gospel of the kingdom, and as we're going to talk about next week, we would be a people striving after holiness. We have no reason to doubt Jesus' promises to us. No reason. So that even when we go out and we toil and we labor, brethren, our labor is not going to be in vain. That
1: it's not, it's not going to end in vain. And brother, that's
0: what I want us to end on. The goal for that evangelism is this. One goal. That would be people are converted and follow after Jesus Christ. That is our goal. Our goal is not simply to just say it. Our goal is not simply to offer something to somebody and then let it be. Our goal is to actually preach the forgiveness of sins in the kingdom of God with fervency and zeal and with faith so that people would be saved and that people would come into this kingdom and that that kingdom would grow. That is our goal in evangelism. And in church for us, this means this. The goal of evangelism in our, in, in, in our church needs to be oriented around things that are going to change our perspective in our church. Evangelism needs to help orient us as a church and you as an individual to do this, to cultivate optimism in your life. That as you think about All right, I've been tasked with evangelism. The church has been tasked with evangelism. It does not become a burdensome, weary, and dreadful task for you to do because you just know nobody's going to listen. God hasn't promised me these things. That ought to change us as a church. And you, if you believe what I just said and read it from Scripture and you heard it from God's Word and testimony, if your attitude is that of one in which it is just pessimism and not thinking anything's ever going to go right for the church and that you're wasting your time doing evangelism, you need to repent. And you need to change your mind to change it to what God has promised us so that we would cultivate within our own lives and in this church optimism about what we're doing in our lives. Brother, we're not wasting our time proclaiming the gospel to the people in this neighborhood. We're not.
1: And brother, it ought to do this too.
0: For you personally, it ought to cultivate a vision for long-term sustainability in your life. And the first area that that needs to happen is that you reorient your entire life around this task. And I mean that. I mean doing whatever you need to do to reorient your job, to reorient your home, to reorient your kids, to reorient your wife. Whatever needs to change so that this task becomes your sole burden and task in your life, it needs to be oriented around it. My wife and my kids need to serve and come along to serve this end. I need to serve my kids and my wife and this church and this community oriented around this end, Brethren, there's no other end we're reaching to. We are not reaching to an eternal bliss of living with family. We're living with a family, the people of God, but not with our, our blood family, not with our wife and our children. Brethren, our end is this finished kingdom. What other thing is there to orient your life around? So you need to do whatever it takes to begin orienting your life around that. You think of all those warnings that Jesus gives to his disciples. If you cannot take up your cross and follow after Jesus, you're not worthy to be his disciple. If you can't put your hand to the plow and look forward in that gospel ministry to orient yourself to this task, and you're willing to look back at what you're leaving behind, not worthy of it. But brethren, it's because there's such glorious promises for us. The idea of even thinking to look back, the idea of thinking to not pick up your cross and follow him should be absurd. That would be my prayer for us is that evangelism would not just have an effect outside of us of conversion of the nations. Brethren, I want it to have an immediacy in its conversion of our hearts that we would orient our lives to this task, whatever it takes. And brethren, I'm learning that. I am in no way telling you to do something that I am not willing to do. Trust me, I I got things coming up where I am praying for because I've been convicted about and am doing because I know that not everything in my life has been oriented around this. To be able to bring my wife and my family and my job and my income all to be oriented around making this a reality in my life and I have just been convicted by it. Brethren, I want you to be convicted by it. I want us to be convinced. That if we are to be an evangelistic church, brethren, we just not—we don't just go out and blast people with forgiveness of sins, and then we do nothing else. But we go out and we proclaim a kingdom that they can have forgiveness of sins with, and we can proclaim the rest of that kingdom, and we can live our lives in such a way that it's actually going to grow. Brethren, that's what it would be for us to be an evangelistic church it would be to proclaim the forgiveness of sins so that the kingdom of God would expand here on the earth and here in this
1: neighborhood. Let's pray.